You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, which, as you've just heard, is produced with the support of Demerco Express Group. I'm Mike King, and you can find this episode and many more on all podcast platforms and on YouTube, along with loads and loads of shorter video interviews. You can also find all this content on www.thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can subscribe to receive every episode direct to your inbox, and please do. Now, a bit later, we'll be speaking to an analyst who spends a lot of his time looking at the world of freight buying from a shipper's perspective, because I'll be interviewing Philip Damas, Managing Director of Drury Shipping Consultants and Head of its Supply Chain Advisors Practice. We'll be looking at global and trans-Pacific supply chain trends and hopefully outlining some risks and opportunities for you guys and your businesses. But first up, we're going to review some of the big stories of 2023. What happened, what didn't happen, what will likely happen, what to watch out for, And for this, we have a leader in his field. He's been breaking supply chain and shipping stories all year. And when he's not, he's providing the analysis that sets the tone across media. It's the Wall Street Journal's Paul Berger. Welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, Paul. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, Paul, you're calling in from New Jersey, but that is a distinctly Northern English accent. How long have you been over there? I've been living in the US for about 20 years and in New Jersey now for about 10. I'm glad to see you've barely lost your accent. How how has the last year been at the Wall Street Journal? It's been a bit different, I'm imagining, to the madness of the, the pandemic period. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I only actually started covering logistics and supply chain about two and a half years ago. So I kind of came into it right in the middle of all the kind of pandemic craziness. So I didn't know what normal looked like. That first year was really interesting watching how all the bottlenecks formed at ports and all of the other issues that shippers and companies in the logistics industry faced. And I mean, I'd say that the last year has been just as interesting as as the first year to 18 months, right? Because we've come down from these massive highs, but it's a bit like coming down on a roller coaster, right? There have been a a lot of issues that that shippers, uh, ocean carriers, trucking companies and, and warehouse operators have faced over the past year. I presume that you were dragged in to cover logistics just because those bottlenecks were so severe that there was an awful lot of stories out there and it was really affecting companies' bottom lines. You presume wrong. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. No, it was just there was an opening on the team and, and I filled it and I just happened to come in at a, a really fortuitous time for a reporter, right? Because there was an awful lot of, of interesting things happening. I'd been a transportation reporter for the journal for four years prior to this beat. So I'd, uh, I'd spent a lot of time looking at how companies move people around and suddenly I was, you know, watching the movement of freight, which has been a really, really fascinating beat to cover. It is an interesting industry, isn't it? Have you found it difficult now we're sort of, we're at the bottom of markets as opposed to at the top when all those pricing was really driving the disruption and, and the costs that for business? Is it a different type of story that you're looking for or you're getting told to chase now that the whole cycle's the other way around now. We're away from this pandemic-driven madness that we had. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a different type of story. But again, it's almost like the other side of the same coin, right? So 
Whereas 18 months ago, I was writing about shippers struggling to send goods because the cost of shipping was so high. Right now, I guess I've been writing stories about shippers who are actually managing, you know, the shipping costs are among some of the bright spots for retailers, for example, who are struggling because consumer spending on goods has gone down. I think likewise, like from a logistics and freight company perspective, you know, a lot of the stories I was writing two years ago were about these record profits. Now it's all about kind of survival of the fittest, watching to see which companies have been weakened, which are surviving, and also of the healthier companies, like what advantages that they're managing to take from actually being around when some of their competitors are struggling. Well, we'll come back to that, actually, because that financial situation has really changed. It, it felt like that we'd had all of our black swans during the pandemic, but they, they never really go away in supply chain. And I want to try and identify some of them later. But one of the big stories, one of the big risks in 2023 was falling port productivity and the possibility of strikes at US West Coast ports. And just to remind listeners, this loomed over supply chains from around like 2021, really, at the height of the pandemic. And to recap, this was the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, which represents uh, 22,000 port workers on the, primarily on the US West Coast. And it was in negotiations with the Pacific Maritime Association, which represents shipping lines and, and terminal operators at 29 West Coast ports. Now, the previous deal between the ILWU and the PMA expired at July the 1st, 2022. The two sides finally reached a tentative agreement in June 23. And now that was finally ratified as a six-year labor contract in September. This caused a fair amount of uncertainty over quite a long period for U.S. business, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was hugely disruptive. You know, I was talking to shippers months ahead of the contract talks beginning, and they were already looking at alternate routes to bring their goods in. They were looking to Gulf Coast and East Coast ports. And then once the contract expired in July, you did see a significant shift of cargo away from the West Coast. And it continued all the way through until uh, the end of the talks. And it was for good reason, right? While the talks were going on, there were occasional work disruptions and stoppages at ports up and down the West Coast. I think it was one of the things that was really interesting was a number of the shippers that I was talking to because of the pandemic right, had already been looking for alternatives to the West Coast because, for example, the ports of LA Long Beach, they were the worst affected when we saw the container ship backups. And so I think in a way, the shippers were well prepared for any disruptions, well prepared to have, you know, options A, B, C, D, and E. And so once the contract was done, a number of shippers were starting to see are moving their cargoes back to the West Coast. For me, one of the interesting things is some of the folks that I've been talking to say they want to keep this, they call it like a four corners strategy, right? So they can bring cargo into the Northeast, the Northwest, the Southeast, and the Southwest, and they can flip between the ports depending upon any kind of outages or stoppages or disruptions that they see. So they're just trying to build in that supply chain resilience there. Now they've been burnt once, they don't want any more repeats. Well, the thing about the pandemic is I think they've all been burned about a half dozen times. Yeah, that's very true. Now, since that ILWU-PMA deal, there has been a, a bit of a twist there. Uh, the ILWU has, has filed for bankruptcy, and this relates to a 10-year legal dispute with Philippines-based terminal operator 
International Container Terminal Services, Inc., uh, ICTSI, which claims that, and judges have, have thus far agreed, that the union's action, such as work slowdowns and stoppages at Oregon Port over an extended period, hit ICTSI's revenue. That's going to rumble on into 2024, that case. But I mention it because one of the accusations against ILWU in the dispute during the pandemic was alleged non-strike action at ports that you just referenced there, which reduced productivity. Some say it accelerated a shift in traffic from the West Coast to the East Coast, as again, you've referenced there. Now, I mention all of that because we have another dispute brewing. Now, this involves the International Longshoremen's Association, the ILA, which represents 70,000 dock workers on the US, Canadian East Coast, and also down on those Gulf ports. The union's top man, Harold Daggett, warned there would be no extensions of the current six-year contract with the US Maritime Alliance. That runs out in September 2024. And there are a number of sticking points, including automation. But Paul, is this feels like history repeating itself a bit, doesn't it? Is this going to be as disruptive as the West Coast dispute? Are people already planning? You mentioned some more resilient scenarios. Do you think people will get more and more wary of this as time goes on in 2024? I think there is a significant amount of wariness about the talks simply because of everything that everyone has been through over the last few years. I know from talking to folks in the maritime and logistics industry, as well as shippers, there is a perception that the Eastern Gulf Coast, the, the International Longshoremen's Association talks are generally less disruptive than, than talks that go on on the West Coast. But we're living in a, in a period where people, you know, you mentioned black swan events, we're living in a period where folks in the logistics industry have just seen a series of these unforeseen events come and smack them in the face. And so I don't think any logistics managers, supply chain professionals are going to take a look at the coming ILA talks and, and, you know, tell the rest of their colleagues that there's nothing to worry about. And it is something that I'll be watching very, very closely. But as I say, I think that the, the ILWU has always been a greater concern for people in the shipping industry. I think I've been covering it for so long. I mean, the, the, the problems always have been on that West Coast. And it was quite a surprise when Daggett came out and was quite militant about some of the things he said, which is pretty unusual for the ILA. Historically, things have tended to be resolved. So, I mean, hopefully they will be again. If I can widen that out slightly, Paul, when Wall Street's looking at this, let's put it this, are they looking at the transport and logistics industry and seeing increased risk from labor, from unions? Because it's not just the port workers of the West Coast. We've got the East Coast coming up. We've had the United Auto Workers, UPS threats, Amazon picket lines. US rail workers got a better deal. US pilots voted to strike. There's quite a lot going on in there. It's, it's a growing list. Yeah, I mean, look, there's, this has been a period of labor unrest coming out of the pandemic when a lot of frontline workers risked their lives to keep freight and people moving to keep essential services going. And also a, a period of, of inflation, the likes of which people haven't seen for quite some time. So you do have a lot of workers out there who feel like they deserve to be paid more. And you also have uh, unions out there that feel as though they, they have a slightly stronger hand than they normally do. And it, it feels to me like what we're doing is we're, we're going through this cycle. You know, these labor contracts are normally negotiated every, what, two, three, four, five six years in the case of uh, some of these dock worker contracts. 
And so each time these contracts come up, you are seeing A, workers asking for more, B, workers more prepared to go on strike or cause disruptions in order to get what they want. And I guess what you know, when when the ILWU gets a good deal, the ILA that then sets the bar for the next negotiation for the next union. It's a benchmark, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Pivoting slightly, a lot of freight companies had record years during the pandemic. Then we've had this big fall off in demand from let's say what mid twenty twenty two, depending on which sector of our industry we're looking at. But taking in air cargo shipping, U.S. domestic freight, in your view, was twenty twenty three the year that freight failed to rebound. Would that be the right way to call it? I don't look at it as a fail to rebound. For me, the most interesting thing was I kept reminding myself through this year that as we headed into 2023, there was a perception, an expectation or a hope, I don't, I don't know which is the best word to use, that freight would rebound in 2023. And again, it depends on the industry, right? But Let's just take trucking, for example. I think the second half of 2023, there was a lot of, there was a lot of hope that that would come back and it just did not come back. I think for some of those same industries, there is a, a hope or an expectation that freight will rebound in 2024. Obviously, the ocean carriers are in a more difficult situation, to say the least. But yeah, so, so maybe 2023 was more a year of like dashed hopes, at least in some sectors of the industry. Is 2024 then the year of very low hopes? I think folks are heading into 2024 in a less optimistic mood than they're headed into 2023. So perhaps they have less to be disappointed by. We have seen some casualties. And, and as you say, the shipping companies are going to be under big pressure this year, but they are sitting on huge cash wads that they generated with those record profits during the pandemic. But in the, the US domestic market, you covered what happened with Convoy and Yellow. Can you just explain that to our readers, those casualties, the symptoms of the downturn, or was this down to their management? Probably both and more. They were very different circumstances, right? Because Convoy was a startup that could not grow fast enough and couldn't reduce its cost by enough. And so in this depressed freight market, they just couldn't survive. And then Yellow is a stark contrast, right? That's a hundred-year-old trucking company that had been weighed down by debt that had been mismanaged for years, at least according to some people. And again, it, it had managed to survive by taking concessions from its unionized workers, by taking loans from the US government. And I guess, you know, that I was going to say house of cards, perhaps that's a little bit too unkind, but the company just couldn't survive this great downturn. Are you expected more companies to possibly succumb to financial distress in 2024? Do you think the groundwork has been laid for that in 2023? I mean, it all depends, doesn't it, on how quickly the uh, freight market picks back up again. I mean, I, it's undoubted that there are companies out there that are still suffering. You know, there have been a lot of layoffs in the freight and logistics industry over the past year. If some of those companies cannot turn the corner over the next year or so, then you know, sure, I'm sure we'll see more companies going out of business. The economic picture in the US is quite mixed. We've got some people who are expecting things to improve in 2024, but Nomura, for example, is predicting a US recession by the third quarter of next year. How are you looking at the US economy in, in terms of what that means for supply chains, but in general as well? I mean, I'm, I'm not an economist. <laughs> So I'm more 
actually spending a lot of my time talking to freight and logistics companies about what their customers are telling them in order to try to glean what we might expect next year. Right now, I would say that most of those companies are not especially hopeful for a significant rebound next year. But, you know, at the same time, the inflation rate has come down. Uh, there, I think there's an expectation that interest rates will also potentially come down next year. But, you know, we still have an ongoing war between, you know, in Israel, Gaza. We still have an ongoing war in Ukraine. We have a presidential election next year. Uh, and then there are all the things that we don't know that are going to happen in the next year. So again, as I said earlier, right, I feel like there are not too many optimistic people out there, but there are a lot of people who appear to be in the mindset where their expectations are not too high. And so they're starting from a low place. So maybe things could get better or hopefully at least they won't get worse. And as we know, sentiment can change very, very quickly on good or bad news. So I mean, we would only need one of those terrible conflicts to improve slightly. And I'm sure everyone would be feeling a lot better about the uh, future of the world. One trend that we've been covering on the Freight Buyers Club all year, which I know you've been following closely too, is this de-risking of supply chain. So this is the shifting of some manufacturing out of China and or closer to home. When you're talking to, to people, is this something that you expect to continue, Paul? Because we've had these predictions in the past that China's time as the world's factory is nigh and nothing has really happened, but mainly because the, the economic logic of nearshoring or reshoring tends not to work out, but it's, it feels slightly different to me at the moment. What's your view? Yeah. I mean, it's been really interesting because again, it, you know, as you say, it's something that everybody is talking about. And yet I feel as though it doesn't show through in the data as strongly as you hear about it anecdotally, right? So. There are some data points that you can point to, particularly, for example, Mexico, you know, there has been an increase of exports and we've seen China exports falling, but the people that I'm talking to, they, they are pretty convinced that this is a thing and that as we move forward, it will become more of a thing, but that also it, it takes a lot of time to shift your supply chains. And so, you know, there were the, the Trump tariffs, what, five years ago that started to move people out of Asia. Then we had all of the shipping bottlenecks and, and all of the other production challenges that companies face during the pandemic. And so I think that, and now obviously we have the geopolitical tensions, as well as the US government investing billions of dollars trying to tempt companies to set up manufacturing and industries like semiconductors in the United States. So this is not something that you click your fingers and, and it happens. But I, I do think that going forward, we are going to see more of it, though at the same time, you can't count China out. There's a reason why it's one of the most popular places in the world for manufacturing and assembly. It has an incredible ecosystem out there, infrastructure, suppliers, just the whole supply chain is set up perfectly for folks importing from China. So that it's not going to go away, but I do think that it's kind of hegemonic kind of grip on the supply chain is going to be loosened a little. I think you're probably right there. And it's not, but it's not easy to move your supply chain, is it? You've covered this in Mexico. There's still hurdles out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the companies that I've been talking to face all sorts of problems in a country like Mexico. I was going to say labor costs, but from some of the companies I've been talking to, labor costs have been rising in China. And so I think in some cases, Mexico can be on a par. But, you know, I mentioned the suppliers earlier on, the suppliers to the 
to the factories. Well, Mexico has a good ecosystem for industries like the auto industry, for example, that some other industries have found that you may decide to place a factory in Mexico, but the suppliers to that factory would still be based in Asia. And then there are other issues too. I mean, shipping by land from Mexico can be quite expensive or even more expensive than shipping by ocean from the Far East. And then on top of that, you have other problems. Um, a number of companies I've spoken to have talked about the uh, electric grid infrastructure in Mexico and how you may want to place a factory in one location, but you actually can't because it's just not set up for manufacturing in that particular place. And then you've got crime as well as slightly security of cargo is a, a bigger risk in, in Mexico than some other places. Yeah, security at the factory itself. And then obviously also security either on the road or on rail, moving your products out of the country. Yeah, huge. Just as we wrap this up, Paul, what else are you keeping an eye on in terms of trends, risks, maybe technology as we look ahead to 2024? I think some of the, yeah, we've actually covered or touched on some of the things. I'm going to be watching the International Longshoremen's Association and potential disruptions at the ports. I'll also obviously be watching for the rebound or lack of a rebound in 2024 and also kind of charting some of the companies that have been struggling this year. We mentioned Yellow, the trucking company. You know, we had a story last night because uh, Yellow had, it was the third largest less than truckload carrier in the sector. It had a massive portfolio of truck terminals. And last night we had a story about 75% of them were sold at auction over the last week. And that's going to that's going to have an interesting effect on their less than truckload industry. But then on top of that, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned is their transition to green fuels. And I've been writing quite a bit this year about electric trucks and also hydrogen powered trucks. And I will be very interested to see how that takes off both in California, where it's strongest in the United States, but then more broadly across the U.S., very interesting. Paul, next up, we have Drury Salib Damas. Um, we'll be zooming into some of these freight markets in a bit more detail. But for now, Paul Berger, all the best for your coverage in the Wall Street Journal in 2024. And thanks for coming on the Freight Buyers Club today. Thanks very much, Mike. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with Demerco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. Demerco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for Trans-Pacific Lanes. With 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, Demerco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. As trailed, I'd now like to welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, Philip Damas, who is the Managing Director of Jururi Shipping Consultants and a head of its supply chain advisors practice. Hello, Philip. Hello, Mike. Glad to be here. You're very welcome. There is actually so much I could ask you about. And I want to come back to some of the big macroeconomic factors I, I touched upon with, with Paul Berger at the Wall Street Journal earlier. But first up, as we come towards the end of the year and people are planning for 2024, one of the big things on the agenda, but particularly in Europe, where the turn of the year is a big contracting season, is ocean tenders. Now, for shippers looking to buy ocean freight in 2024 and thinking about this process, aside from just looking at those base ocean freight costs, you know, the, the spot rates, 
What other factors should they be really thinking about at the moment? Okay. So as you said, most of the European shippers and BCOs are currently negotiating, particularly their Asia-Europe contracts. And they're right in the middle of it. Some of our customers are doing it. We're also managing some tenders for them. And clearly the base rates, the contract base rates, will be substantially lower, 40% plus this contract season, which is significant. So getting reductions, provided you know what you're doing, is a given. What it means is that once you've got this, where are you going to find the next source of efficiencies and savings? And as procurement managers in your audience, they have to look at incremental gains every year. So our review is beyond the freight rates. You have to look at what we call the overcharges or the surcharges. So for this, we're talking about reducing detention demurrage costs, making sure that you're not asking for too much free time, free equipment time, because this name free time is misleading. In fact, free time is not free. You pay for it through your, your base rates. And you also have to have the right contract terms so that if you go over the free time, you are not penalized unfairly. So that's one of the areas. And then also you have to control things like the way you manage your logistics. So now there are many cloud-based bit tools which are much more, more efficient. In the old days, GTN cost $100,000 a day. Now you get something similar for $10,000 a day. And you save about half of the time processing the tenders. So with this, you can really save on your staff logistics time. And the new, very topical topic, which may not be known widely by your US audience, is the emission trading scheme or carbon tax in Europe. So this will start from January and we may discuss it um, later, but that's an area where you really have to contain the cost increases because that's a new cost. As you mentioned there, certainly in the US, the tension and demurrage charges have been in the news of a fair bit. Uh, we're still seeing these big legal cases with the Federal Maritime Commission, the highest profile being Bed Bath & Beyond, the bank retailer, which claims that MSC, obviously the world's largest shipping line now, owes it a massive $315 million in compensation. We'll be watching those stories on the Freight Buyers Club the next year or more. But let's look at the uh, European emissions trading system that you mentioned there. As you say, this is a new regulatory system. We've covered it on this podcast previously, but cutting to the chase, shipping lines will essentially be passing on carbon credit bills to shippers to cover fleet emissions. And I won't go into the really complicated process of how all this works, but the top carriers have all published their ETS surcharges. What does this mean for shippers in terms of their bills on, on the transatlantic trade so far as we know now in early December? First of all, most of the BCOs are unclear about how this is going to play out, including our customers. So there's no clarity exactly about how much the charges will be. There's no clarity about whether they are negotiable. It appears, based on our contract, that some carriers are not willing to negotiate their unilateral surcharges. It's not clear at all how they are calculated. It's not clear how frequently they'll be adjusted. So I think it's too early to say where this will end it may actually roll over into next year until these charges are payable. For example, one of our customers has refused to pay in January and pushed the debate until February. So the situation now is for Transatlantic, for example, the charges will not be substantial, frankly. You're talking, based on the carrier surcharges, about 80 euros, not dollars, 
to a 40-foot container, which we will not break the bank. But our view is that it's not just the, the amount in the first year which matters. is trying to set it at a justified, reasonable level, because based on European regulations, it will more than double in 25 and 26. So it's important to get more clarity and more evidence about this level of charges. I think there's two questions there, Philip. One is, what sort of transparency do you think shippers should be seeking from carriers? And secondly, when you say that one of the carriers at least has, has refused point blank to negotiate surcharges, I've been here before with surcharges. Does that mean that they're going to refuse point blank indefinitely to negotiate surcharges? Is all this going to be rolled up into an all-in cost that's part of an overall negotiation on a tender? So it's a good question. It's a, I think, frankly, it's too early to say whether it would be rolled up into an overall rate or whether it would be broken out. We are seeing different discussions. Some of the shippers who work for point blank refuse to discuss the ETA surcharges. It's a mirror image of the carrier I mentioned before. And they're saying, if there's a surcharge, put it to the base rate. That's one approach. And then the other approach is that we recommend is to try and document and scale a justified level of specified surcharges, which you will ask your carriers to put into your tender sheet so that you have clarity on what's the surcharge and you can track it and negotiate it in the future. So I think that's important for it in the firm favorable way forward, trying to break it out and then negotiate it. If we look at the market more, more generally, the spot rates of, are down, looking at the Drew's World uh, Container Index. I mean, we're what, 40 to 60% down year on year on most spot rates on most trades. How does this play out for those contract negotiations? As you mentioned earlier, the 10 of the year is a big one for the Asia-Europe trade. May, June, July tends to be big for the Trans-Pacific. Are there optimum times to do your contracting? So in the current market, which is hugely oversupplied, and already, frankly, if you negotiate any time between now and end of 2024, you'll have excellent results. Huh? <laughs> but, so there might be a slightly better time to negotiate. For example, you have to avoid negotiating during Chinese New Year, have to avoid negotiating during the peak season. But if you avoid these obvious wrong times, frankly, anybody who wants to negotiate now for the European trade or February for the Trans-Pacific trade will get very good results. Huh? So you're, you're seeing though that supply-demand balance being under pressure right through 2024. I mean, I, I guess this is also because we've got so many ships coming on stream and not a lot of ships are obvious candidates for deletion. Indeed. So we at Droy, as you may know, we do some uh, container forecast uh, assessments and forecasts of supply and demand. And 2024 will be the all-time low in terms of supply demand for container shipping. Even in 2009, even 2016, it's never been this oversupplied. That's a completely new situation, and it will definitely lead to lower freight rates, plus some undesirable side effects. But there will be huge pressure on the carriers. Based on your projections, Philip, about that supply-demand balance, what are you expecting carriers to do to try and find some traction on these general rate increases that we've seen them trying to push through even in the fourth quarter of 2023. Are we looking at a lot more blank sailing? How feasible is, is that strategy? Yes, so the carriers will have to do something to mitigate or try to minimize the oversupply. There will definitely be oversupply 
the question of trying to control the level of oversupply. So definitely there will be more council sailings. We think there will be chronic use of council sailings and industrial use of council sailings, which would significantly reduce the predictability of container ship departures. That's one. Second point is we think there will be further reductions in speed of ships. Uh, they may also scrap the slowest, oldest ships. So that will result in longer transit times for the shippers, which is also a negative. And then there may be significant suspensions or cancellations of entire services or loops. This point really depends on how the carriers want to manage that market. If they want to sacrifice some cargo volumes, sacrifice potentially some market share to protect their bottom line, they do this. If they don't want to do that, then we will continue the system where there will be structural significant oversupply for quite some time. Just going back to the contracting process, the tender process, I'm going to guess here, because you offer these services, that you'd recommend some sort of benchmarking partner to help advise the shippers on some of this. But there's something I don't quite follow, but can pivot slightly from that. If you're buying ocean freight, how does that process change now that we have some of these European carriers trying to sell end-to-end logistic services rather than port-to-port ocean freight services? Does this complicate the tender process? Is there more options on the table? Is that how it works? Yes, there are definitely more options. So now it's a bit more, in some cases, a one-stop shop. But in practice, the way to do this when you buy transportation and associated services is to have separate tenders for a category of service. So even if you were to bid for less than container load from a MERSC or a CMA, it would be a separate tender, separate exercise from the full container load. And the same for the value add services. You have things called origin services. So support from the factory to the port of origin in Asia. That's also a separate tender. You have warehousing services. That's also a separate tender. So it makes it easier if you have the same bidders who you know who are involved in separate tenders. But it's not as if you're handing over your entire life to somebody. It's organizing different tenders. Don't hand your life away. Right. Uh, <laughs> okay. Higher risk. If we can look at those risks, you mentioned there, if we've got a lot of blanks, we'll probably get cargo rollovers. We're going to have schedule reliability. It's probably not going to get a lot better than where it is now, which isn't that great considering we're post-pandemic. But there are all the risks out there. We heard earlier about port strikes in the US, which blighted sort of large parts of 21 and, and 22 and even through last year. And we've got more that possibly could happen next year on the East Coast. We've got El Nino's hitting water levels on the Panama Canal and in South America. We've got two-way wars raging at the moment, and we're seeing ships being diverted in the Middle East. How do shippers get their heads around all of this risk? Is there anything they can do in terms of preparation when they're talking to carriers about contracts? So, uh, first of all, I think listening to your long list of uh, disruptions and problems and following the pandemic, I think most shippers now know they need to have backup plans. Most shippers have been tasked with finding more sustainable ways of moving their cargo so that they are not subject to complete disruptions when a problem happens. Because what a problem will always happen, frankly. You said earlier now we have problems in two canals, we have problems in several regions. 
So there has to be a setup by the shipper to have different backup plans or risk management plans is what I'm looking for. And they may or may not involve the carriers. Some plans will be for cancel sellings, for example, it's better if you have a, an agreement with a carrier so that you book cargo on two loops, let's say Shanghai to New York, two separate loops per week, so that if one cancel, there's an agreement with a carrier that will transfer the capacity to the second loop, maybe two days later, and you're covered. So that's an easy one. If it's a complete act of the God, there's nothing the carrier can do, except perhaps there's an agreement they will air freight the cargo at extra cost to make the same delivery time. And then you have more structural problems, like a pandemic or other things, where you effectively need to duplicate everything. So you will need to have a China production, you need to have a, maybe a Vietnam production. Then it moves to a supply chain leadership, which is a much tougher and more expensive way of ensuring against all these incidents. But definitely for the ocean carriers we are focusing on now, you can develop processes and contract terms so that, for example, the carrier will say, if there's a cancel sailing, I will do this. Or if there's a problem with the port, I will alert you and then I will offer a replacement routing. And uh, carriers are quite receptive to those sort of requests, are they? Well, if you're a large customer, if you're a VIP customer, big volume, yes, they will have an account manager who will come up with suggestions like this. And if you're a small shipper? Then it's much harder. You're on your own. <laughs> okay. Actually, Paul Berger was talking about this quite interesting. He said a lot of US shippers that he interviews uh, have now moved to a, I think he called it a four corners port strategy. So they're, they're dividing where everything comes in by the, the four different corners of the US just to, so they can mix it up. So they've got four different routes they can always use depending on where the disruption is, which seems quite sensible when we look at possible union action on the Eastern Gulf Coast. And we've had these problems on the Panama, the Suez Canal, obviously you referenced there as well. Uh, there's a lot of different shipping options at the moment, isn't there? Or there's limitations on those options. Exactly. And the four-corner strategy is definitely a good one. But, but then you also have to make sure you have a DC in each of the four corners, which you need to plan for. So that's more possibly multiplying your supply chain costs overall, which is, you know, that's always the equation, isn't it? Resilience versus price. Exactly. Okay. Let's look at the Trans-Pacific trade in a little bit more detail. Can you give our listeners a quick overview about how volume performed on the head haul in, into the US during 2023 and what you're expecting to happen in 2024 when some economists, as we heard earlier, are forecasting uh, a US recession? So for Trans-Pacific Eastbound, we have now seen more than four quarters of double-digit reductions, and that was a reaction to the COVID boom of consumer demand in the US. So in other words, there was a boom in 2021, first half of 22, then second half of 22 onwards, it was down 10, 20, 25% volumes year on year. So 2023, looking at my numbers there, was approximately a 7% reduction in volume, which is disappointing because even if you compare with 2019, 2023 is approximately the same as 2019. So there, there were four years of lost volume growth. And looking, that's because I think uh, the U.S. economy has not done great um, in 23. And also, I think some of the sectors have been affected more. 
like furniture imports and big bulky imports. So the demand has actually not increased for years now. And for 24, based on our container forecast numbers, there will be an impressive growth of 0.3% year on year, which is again, nothing. So we're seeing very low, we don't see a reduction yet, but we see virtually no growth. There's been quite a lot of mixed signals from the US because consumers have been surprisingly, well, consumer demand has been surprisingly resilient and some of those retail sale numbers aren't too bad. Is this some of this that's reflected in the Trans-Pacific volumes? Is that because of those high inventory levels post-pandemic? Definitely, yeah, high inventory. And I think still working on this, there's a change in the mix of products. So maybe they buy more electronics and lower big things. And in terms of the operators active, on the Trans-Pacific, we saw a lot of small carriers, even shipper-owned carriers enter the business during the pandemic. Yes. Have they all been squeezed out now? So nearly all of them have gone. So we moved from the boom to the bust, but there are a few of them hanging on there. So I was checking earlier, Trans-Pacific, we still have Transfar and Sea Lead, who are very small operators, providing very infrequent Trans-Pacific service. And for Transatlantic, Element, which I think is the one, what you could call a shipper-owned carrier, still have a fairly infrequent transatlantic service. So there's three. There were probably 15 or so at the peak, three left. Less options for shippers, inevitably, I guess. Indeed. And what it also means is that the consolidation of industry is now again at a record high. So the top five carriers don't have a number, but it's approximately 60% of the market which gives a different interpretation of what could happen to the capacity because now you don't need that many decision makers to make a big difference to the market. I want to come back to what this downturn means for consolidation in the container industry in a second, but I know you guys at Drury, you did some excellent research on the changing nature of container flows out of China. This relates to what I was talking to Paul earlier about, in fact which is more sourcing diversification into places like South Asia, Southeast Asia, even Mexico. But you're already finding this as a trend in box volumes out of China, aren't you? Or out of all the different places? Yes. So, so this near-shoring or friendly shoring has been discussed for years and years, but it is now happening. So definitely, we track the port throughputs or port volumes in South Asia. If this year they're up 6%, it's the highest growth region in the world. Behind that, you have Southeast Asia, a bit less impressive, but up 2% year on year, probably higher for Vietnam and lower for some other regions, whereas Chinese exports, which we also track, are flat. So China is losing market share. It's not declining yet in absolute terms. And for Mexico, it's difficult to track for us because the volumes from Mexico to the U.S. based on our benchmarking club are really, really small. It appears that uh, 90% plus moves by truck or by rail. So we don't see these numbers in the normal statistics where we can compare ocean volumes. As you say, there's been, we've had false dawns in terms of near-shoring, friend-shoring, ally-shoring, reshoring, whatever you want to call it, in the past. But this is now is a real trend. Um, obviously, it's going to be gradual just because of the nature of changing your supply chains and making those investments is, is such a slow process by definition. But do you expect it to accelerate in the years coming? Yes. So we uh, definitely think that um, there will be much more 
from regions like South Asia, like Vietnam. And we think that uh, this is also affecting the strategies of some ports. Because if you think about South Asia and Southeast Asia as growth areas, from the U.S. perspective, they tend to move their cargo via the Suez Canal to the East Coast, as opposed to via Panama Canal to the West Coast or East Coast. So this is great news for the U.S. East Coast ports and the logistics industry. It's not such good news for West Coast ports because with China, the traditional China, Korea, Japan to U.S. West Coast trade doesn't have any good growth perspectives anymore. And I guess that will act to those already quite long-standing trends in the U.S., which is more economic activity or new economic activity towards the eastern seaboard. And we saw an acceleration of some of that cargo moving from the west coast to the east coast during those port disputes as well last year. There's the short-term and the long-term trends pushing cargo towards the east coast. Exactly. I agree. Philip, finally, predictions. I'm sure you were desperately looking forward to this part of the interview. Tell us something we haven't discussed so far that shippers should be looking out for next year. So 2024 for shippers will be a second year of the buyer's market. What it means is that they will secure further rate reductions, not as big as they did in 2023, but still further reductions. But the, there will be a price to pay, which is that the service reliability and service levels of carriers will probably worsen. So it's um, also an area with plenty of uncertainty and risks, like the ILA labor situation, partly, frankly, possible effects on the Panama Canal water shortages, which could be one of the exceptions where rates go up as opposed to down on most of the other routes. So there would be a number of situations to manage. So it would be great from a cost viewpoint, but it would be harder for shippers in terms of logistics operations. And one more sneaky question, if I can just fit one, one in there. And I sort of referenced it slightly earlier. We've got this downturn for container lines. And unlike in previous downturns, they've all made a fair amount of cash, we can say, safely there. But if we are looking at big liner losses, and I'm sure you've got some numbers on this, how big could they be? And is there any risk of another hand in or at least a major bit of consolidation, maybe even a big a bit of M&A? So many of our shipper customers are starting to ask us that question. In the past, it's, there was uh, surprise at how much money the carriers were making. You know, we estimated made $300 billion profits in 2022, record high. Much more money than when I worked in the container shipping industry. Yeah, same, same, yeah. So 2023, we estimate that we'll still make $20 billion of profit, which is the sort of normal type profits. But now we're moving to oversupply. We think they will lose $15 billion in 24. Of these, there will be a number of carriers who will be losing much more money than others. So if you look at the, if you're familiar with the Altman Z-score index, which measures the bankruptcy risk of carriers, of companies. There's only one ocean carrier who looks vulnerable today, and this is Zim. And Zim doesn't look as vulnerable as Hanjin did back in 2015-16. Plus, Zim has cash reserves. So what we can't really tell shippers is that there isn't anybody who will go bankrupt anytime soon, and they have plenty of cash. But we will see more consolidation still. The, the biggest carriers are going the fastest. As we discussed before, the new entrants have disappeared and the smaller carriers are not expanding so much. 
So there will be continuation of consolidation, which will continue to shape the container carrier industry. Uh, presumably, Zim's at most at risk due to the nature of how it's built up his fleet, which is very reliant on chartering. That's right, Jason. And of course, Zim's probably even heightened risk now because it, it's being targeted in the Middle East, isn't it? That's true too. We know there's been questions of um, diverting ships. But having said that, our opinion draw is that the Israeli government would not let Zim go bankrupt. I think that's the sort of consensus view in the industry. And do you think we'll see any major changes in the alliance system? Are we going to see anyone departing from one of those big alliances? Uh, pass. <laughs> Philip Damas, Managing Director of Drury Shipping Consultants and Head of Drury Supply Chain Advisors Practice. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club podcast. Thank you, Mike. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the Demerco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.